Welcome back to the NBA Recap Show here on the Mojo Sports Network. I'm your host, Alexander Jay. Uh, if you're listening to today's show, you might notice no show last week. Uh, I produced a show from up in North Queensland, and we had a slight issue with a cyclone coming over the top of my house, and I didn't have power for a couple of days. So I really haven't seen any basketball in the last two weeks. Today's show is these two guys kind of taking me through the lens of what's happened in basketball Yuri Bilsic and Tom Dev. Today, we're going to debate who had the biggest monster game over the last couple of weeks. We had, you know, Embiid 70. Luke had 73 at some point. A whole bunch of big scoring games. We're going to look into the recent rises of the Knicks and the Cavs, even though both of them are missing key players with injury. And we're going to have a chat, brief chat, hopefully, about the 65-game restriction on uh, the major awards and the MVP race now that we've got some breaking news this morning about Embiid's injury status. Tom, what's going on, my friend? Not much, not much. You know, I'm just just glad we're all we're all back. I mean, you got to meet that 65 podcast limit to <laughs> to to make the all podcast team. So glad we could get another one in this week. Yuri, what's going on with you, my friend? Yeah, great to be back on, Alex. And we are approaching 50. Hey, we're on about what number 41, 42. So I lost it's count definitely long gone ago. quick. Hey, it's definitely gone quick, but it's been great. All right, we do have a couple of breaking stories this morning. We'll hit them both back-to-back. Uh, Joel Embiid's been out with an injured meniscus in his left knee, I believe. This is one of the things that happened while I had no internet, no power. Um, I believe he had someone fall on his knee while he was playing gingerly against the Golden State Warriors, getting bullied in national and international media for not playing enough. Um, who was it who fell on his leg again? I, I've been without this Jonathan for a while. Kaminga. Kaminga in that Golden State game. So, Sham Sharania this morning has released a tweet stating, Philadelphia 76ers star Joel Embiid, who is the NBA MVP, has been diagnosed with a displaced flap of the meniscus in his left knee and his weighing rest rehab or a procedure, according to multiple sources. Um, I don't know how much you guys know about sports injuries, but this is kind of my wheelhouse. This is what I went to university for 10 years ago before dropping out. So I know a little bit about, and I've done my research this morning, so I'll give you the 30-second overview of this kind of injury. Uh, Brian Sudra, MD, who is the YouTube sports doc, who's relatively pretty good at explaining this thing, says, one terrible way to describe this injury, they call it a displaced flap. It's actually a tear. Um, If you tell a sports doc someone has a displaced flap, those are the words you use to describe something that needs surgery. And if rest and rehab is still an option, it's pretty poor communication from the sixes. Jeff Stotts, who runs uh, In Street Clothes, the really good um, Twitter account that you know maintains injury absences, was on the Zach Lowe podcast earlier this week. He's a sports orthopedics. He says, uh, regarding this specific meniscus tear, a flap tear is an unfortunately complex type of tear that is most commonly treated with a partial meniscectomy. I'll come back to that in a second. A partial meniscectomy usually means taking out part of the meniscus, the cushioning factor between the knees. It's usually a quicker return to play than repairing the meniscus. And I've been through some medical journals this morning. There's a heap of guys who have had it uh, previously. Dwayne Wade, Blake Griffin, Russell Westbrook, and Beads had a partial meniscectomy previously. And there's really no difference in agility, jumping, and quickness partially, excuse me, past the surgery. Philly are spiraling though. This is the thing. They're fifth in the East. They're 30 and 17, and they're six and four in their last 10, really not playing super well without Embiid. Tom, what say you about this entire situation? Well, that was, that was a really good recap there, Dr. J. I, I quite enjoyed that one. Um, as someone who has torn their meniscus three times... That's I, why I, I threw it to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can tell you it's it's not much of a fun injury. Um, look, I, I think, you know, before we knew that this is what the injury was, Kendrick Perkins went on ESPN, and I have to say I don't exactly respect most of what he says on that show, but 
he said he should be shut down for the rest of the season. And I kind of went, hmm, it's an interesting take. But now we know the full extent. I can't agree more. I mean, with a hundred, with a one hundred percent Embiid, the Sixers team was still going to be long odds to get out of the second round, let alone win a title. With Embiid at seventy percent, they might not even make it past the first round, let alone win a title. So why risk it? I mean, the potential to do more harm and long term damage that will hurt him and this team going forward is just there if he is to play. And you know, I mean, from a from from a my team perspective, the Celtics in twenty twenty two, Rob Williams did his meniscus. Um, late in the season, uh, you know, maybe about a couple months before the playoffs started. He had surgery, rushed back for the playoffs, missed most of the first round and the second round, looked to shell himself in the Eastern Conference finals and finals, really just did not play up to it. That offseason, he had to have more surgery because it just wasn't right. Never really got back to 100% in the 2022-23 season. Got traded and now, you know, within four games for the Blazers, was out for the whole season. Different knee injury, a different knee, but still... He's a very injury-prone player, and it just keeps building up. These big guys are like that. And, you know, you look at Kevin Durant in the 2019 finals. He rushed back. He tore his Achilles. At least that one was the finals, and they were about to be eliminated in Toronto. So that one was worth the risk. I can see why Durant would do that. But for this one, what happens if Embiid goes out there and just completely shreds his knee again, and then all of a sudden it goes from, I'm going to miss half a season to I miss a season and a half. That's two postseason runs you'll miss. It's just not worth the risk, in my opinion. I'm interested to know your guys' thoughts, but for me personally, I sit him for the season. I tank it out. Maybe get a better draft pick. They got cap space with Tobias Harris going. Who knows what can happen? Yuri, I think early on, even before the Golden State game, he was quite a little bit sort of laboring on that knee at that point. And then once it came to the Warriors game, and having watched it too, the first half and especially that first quarter. He didn't quite have that normal spring that he normally has. And he was settling for a lot of jump shots, three-pointers, including one of them too, which he missed. And it just didn't feel as though he had the legs under him, right? And those players that Nick Nurse loves to run with him at the top with Tyrese Maxey in those handoffs and getting it down to him on the block and him rolling to the rim, it never occurred. And it was just really a peculiar sign that he wasn't 100% fit. And... Of course, he missed a Denver game and one the Nuggets fans had an Embiid wanted poster because he hasn't played the Nuggets in Denver since November 8 of 2019. It's a very, very strange time now for the 76ers, having done all their hard work through the first 46 games, 47 games of this season to be where they are, especially with, of course, we've already talked about this on so many occasions, James Harden's eventual trade request to the LA Clippers. But to really sort of put everything into a whole context, if he goes down, it's sort of, it's very, maybe not reminiscent, but of what happened with the Brooklyn Nets in 21-22, Alex. Do you remember when Durant hurt his MCL when against the New Orleans Pelicans on January 15? The Brooklyn Nets were about 29-15 and 15 or 29-14 and 14 at that, that point. You're correct, up, yeah. Yeah, they end up losing like 10 straight games in a row and just completely slid down the standings. And until KD came back in, I think it was in March, and then they were just able to at least resurrect the tide a little bit and, of course, get into the playoffs and eventually so be swept I would say by that's Celtics. A, that's a really good uh, similar situation to this Philadelphia 76ers team. So 
just quickly, the partial meniscectomy, geez, that's hard to say, varies differently depending on what the mechanism, right? But we've seen guys come back like uh, Metal World Peace, the former Ron Artest, came back, I believe, in 2010 in two weeks from a partial meniscectomy. Now, that's crazy. That's the outlier. But you can return in four, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks um, a lot quicker than you would a repair. So I'm looking at the standings. Philly have fallen a fifth, but they're 11 games up of the Brooklyn Nets who are 11th, so out of the play-in. Even if you lose a lot over the next eight to 10 weeks, I still think Philly are play-in. I mean, they're not going to drop below the Brooklyn Nets, are they? You have Embiid back at the end of the season, and you go, all right, if you are healthy, big man, if you are 98%, because we're not going to risk generational injury to you again, can we roll through it? Can we try it? Because what we've seen from this year, he won the MVP last year. I think he's been better this year. I, I, I think you shut him down. It's this, what is it, the 4th of February? 10 weeks from now is mid-April. I think that's plenty of rehab time. We Maybe we see Philly come through. It'd be a tough slog if they're the 8th or 7th position, though. You're playing Milwaukee, who I don't trust as a coaching squad, or Boston, who I would be afraid of. Is that a realistic scenario? I think that's fairly realistic. I think that's what we should expect. Yeah, you can say most likely, Alex. And Paul Reed's a very, you could say, handy backup centre too when given his minutes as well. And he displayed quite a fair bit in recent games as well. So I think, yes, you've got to lose a heaps amount. That's pretty obvious to say that right away. And how the offence runs without Embiid, that's the other point as well. The biggest part to this all now is Tobias Harris's production with Embiid out. Maxi and Kelly Oubre too. So it's pretty much going to revolve around those three and hopefully if they get a lot of bench production as well to really combat what the big three are able to, well, those three, should I say, not the big three, but those three in the starting lineup are able to produce. So it's almost a sort of all-by-team committee right now because they're similar to what the Lakers had to do. And that's in itself a very short sample size back to 2012-13 when Kobe tore his ACL, no, his ACL, his minutes. This is incorrect. He's Achilles against Golden State on April 12th. And those final two games, and that it's a ridiculous short sample size to say that, but it's almost the same sort of spinning parallel comparisons you can use, except Philadelphia's situation, what, there's now 35 games. They're currently losing to the Brooklyn Nets. They'll have about 35 games left, or 34, shall I say, to go in the regular season to really sort of string together some sort of cohesion without Embiid and sort of bring about some different offensive sets that can run without him. Tom, any last thoughts before we move on to the other injury news from this morning? I just, I I, I think even with a healthy Embiid, it's just a long ask for the Sixers to come back in the play-in and for Embiid to play healthy throughout the whole entire playoffs. He's never done it in his career. So coming back from an injury, I, I don't see him doing it again. That's why I just I'm in team shutdown. I just I just don't see the point. If you risk him getting injured, then all of a sudden you waste two seasons opposed to one, maybe even more. I'd shut him down and just go again next year. Give, give him the whole entire offseason to rehab, build up his, you know, uh aerobic capacity and everything and get back to the MVP that we know he can be. The other major injury news coming out this morning on February 4th is that Zach Levine will miss the entire remainder of the season. Sham Sharania again beating Woj and tweeting out about an hour ago that in consultation with management, 
that's strange. Zach Levine has decided to undergo season-ending surgery on his right foot. Um, I mentioned Jeff Stotts, who was on the Zach Lowe pod earlier this week. He indicates Levine has previously talked about a fifth metatarsal injury this season. That's the pinky side, uh, pinky side of the foot, not necessarily the toe, but the midfoot. Uh, lots of injuries there. KD's had some Jones fracture stuff. It's a semi-common injury in the NBA. The Bulls are currently ninth in the East, 23 and 26. They are three games back of eighth. Interesting, I've been saying they should blow this team up for years. They've got a 34-year-old DeMar DeRozan, who's an expiring contract, averaging 22 points a game. 23-year-old Kobe White's been really good at almost 25 assists. Levine's had 19 points himself. Vucevic has been good if you've been watching, and Alex Caruso, uh, highly coveted around the league, let's say that. What the hell, uh, Tom, start us off here. This is just a bummer, I guess. I, it, it is, but uh, this should be a lesson to all GMs in the league. That this is why you work in silence. You know, we knew that Levine was up for trade from what November, really, essentially. Uh, you know, he value just completely tanked the moment they knew he was up for trade. Then got injured, so his value went down even further. Then no one really wanted to pay anything of significance to trade for him. And then now he'll be coming in the next season off surgery, where no one's going to want to give up anything again for his forty million dollar a year contract for four years. So. Uh, let this be a lesson to GMs. If you actually want to get rid of a guy, don't you know? let it be known. Just pull the trigger. Go. Because otherwise, this is what's going to happen. Now, they'll be lucky if they even get a, you know, a half-decent role player back for Levine. It's basically just going to be a bunch of contracts that they don't really want. Um, and look, for the Bulls, they just need to blow it up now. They've got to get something for DeMar, Vucevic, and Caruso and hit a hard reset. Um, trade Levine as soon as you can. Build around White as your point guard. I like Kobe White. I think he can be a good player. Not a number one or a two, but he could be a three. Um, you know, it, again, it's a similar situation to the Sixers. You know, even with Levine, they weren't going to be doing much damage in the playoffs. So without him, they won't make it past the first round if they even make the playoffs at all. Um, just one little quirk, though. I did work on some trade machine stuff for Crusoe. It's Ooh. hard to find him a new home just because none of the contending teams actually have worthwhile assets that the Bulls would actually want in return. So... It's not as simple as just trading him. I, I I couldn't even find a team that would actually want him and could give like a decent first round pick in return. So interesting one to see. But you know what? Less than a week until the trade deadline now. And we thought they were going to be movers. They said they wouldn't be. And now all of a sudden it looks like with this new injury news, they actually could be. Yuri? Yeah, it's a game. It's another sort of very fine, delicate position where the Bulls are at the moment. And I think the success that they had without Levine when he was out for those multiple weeks with a foot injury, right, and they played pretty exceptionally well in a way too, especially I think when he watched him on offense as well and without Levine, there was a lot more side-to-side ball movement that they had going. And whereas when he put Levine back in the lineup, which they did, I think against Charlotte, him and Vucevic returned at the same time and it sort of the offense gets very one-on-one and it goes down to like the final five six seconds on the shot clock and that's where you sort of just scratch your head and really it undoes a lot of the hard work that the Bulls have been able to do and yes they were five and 14 to start the season and somehow be able to get within three games of being and even 500 or above so it's something but yet again it's almost they're just treading water without really advancing any further than they'd expect to Remember before start of twenty one twenty two season, a lot of those expectations, especially with Lonzo Ball there at the helm too and what he was doing for the first thirty five games and sadly goes down and doesn't hasn't played again since January fourteen, even though 
his preparation rise, be able to at least run again to a good extent and seeing him come back most likely next season too. But I think we spoke about a couple of weeks ago or so about those potential sort of trades for Levine and the Lakers being one of them too. And I think Charlotte was another one there around Lucky. that point. Ooh. Yeah, but it, and also Detroit. There was actually another one too recently, like last night. I think Zach Lowe. It was mentioned by him that Detroit is is one of those other potential suitors for him. So the Lakers does make sense. It it leads into our next point. I was going to sorry to interrupt you, but our next point for the week was LeBron James tweeting out a ticking time emoji, uh, kind of foreshadowing he can be a free agent this offseason if he wants to. He's got a player option he can decline. I don't think it's a great fit, DeMar DeRozan, to LA, but they can do it cap-wise and with the assets they've got uh, by sending D'Angelo Russell, who's probably playing the best he's ever had in his career. I know I've missed the last two weeks NBA action, but I can see those box scores. Um, and like either Jared Vanderbilt or Rui Hachimura. Uh, DeRozan's from LA. I was wearing a DeRozan jersey from the Bulls when I read the news this morning, and I thought, okay. Uh, uh, any quick thoughts on that one before we hit the other four points I want to talk about from the last week in the association? I think with the LeBron one and all that, it's sort of there was a very similar situation in his final season, Cleveland, back in 2017-18, and a reporter asked him about why he unfollowed the Cavs on Twitter. And I still remember his reply. He was just like, next question. So he sort of deflected it aside pretty well. And it was the same thing as well recently too when he was asked about the ticking hourglass if you want to call it that way and he basically had a pretty similar response too so yeah it's a it's a very unknown once more too and what he even said that there was potential reports if his son Bronny gets drafted to whichever he said team this over that's again. where he wants to yeah. play he said it over and over again wherever his son gets drafted he wants to go play for him so I don't know if that means he'll just choose I mean, Philly should just draft him. Let's talk about that. Uh, at the end of the show, we'll talk about the LeBron trade. So let's put a pin in this uh, for 30 minutes' time. Uh, Tom, some other news for the week is Jalen Brunson making his made an all-star selection. He's been a beast. Doc Rivers hiring as the Bucks coach. I haven't seen the Bucks play at all, so I don't know how that's going for him, but I've got no faith in Doc Rivers at all. Uh, Russell Westbrook becoming the 25th player in NBA history to reach 25,000 points, and the Memphis Grizzlies... Uh, Who'd they trade? They, it was Stephen Adams. Stephen Adams. So the Houston Rockets got rid of him, get some picks. Tom, pick one of those and uh, tell us about it. Oh, we've got to go, got to go with Doc Rivers. Um, Do you we? Know, I mean, <laughs> we got it. We got it. Uh, I mean, a few weeks ago, I, I sort of put the theory out that maybe, you know, the Lakers would make a move for oh. Doc Rivers. And then, you know, obviously we haven't had a show since it all happened, but out of nowhere, you know, we woke up uh, one morning and then, you know, Adrian Griffin was fired and, it was, you know, you made the joke in the group chat that he clearly didn't debate, uh, defeat Detroit by enough to, to keep his job. But, you know, it was a really interesting one and I'm sure more will come out uh, maybe at the end of the season about what really happened. But it was just, it seemed bad from the start when Terry Stotts walked away after an altercation at training supposedly happened. Um you know, I mean, now you really got to think how much the regret the Bucks have not hiring Nick Nurse. Uh, although the reports were uh, that Giannis was the one who pulled the plug on that and apparently spoke to OG Anobi and uh, Pascal Siakam, I think it was. And they basically said, you don't want to play for this guy. He's going to make you work too much. So uh, I think that, that was from the, I heard that from the group chat uh, ringer show. So uh, I, I hope that's a correct uh, reporting that they were doing on that. But 
Doc Rivers is interesting. You know, he's been on the Bill Simmons podcast every couple of weeks throughout the season. And he's been, been good. Interesting. Yeah. He's been really good. I, I honestly, I think, you know, Doc Rivers, the, you know, media guy is going to actually have a better career than Doc Rivers, the coach. But clearly he couldn't, you know, keep sitting on his hands and waiting. So he's back, which will be interesting. Uh, first two games, it was a bit of a tough one. I mean, you had uh, Denver in Denver. That's always going to be a tough one for your first game. And then you had the Portland Trailblazers game, which was basically them going, hey, we're going to get revenge against Dame. I fully saw that one coming. I'm not hitting the panic button yet just because they're 0-2, um, despite what some people want to do. But no, look, he's, he knows how to coach uh, stars. I, you know, not, not to plug my stuff, but I wrote an article during the week about all the players that Doc Rivers has coached and making a team. It's stacked, and it's only going to get more stacked. So... I'm excited, but you know, I, I think I'll just hand over the floor to Yuri as the Bucks fan and uh, his reaction to all this because I, I, for one, thought uh, that this probably wasn't going to be the coach that the Bucks fans would be too happy with. Yeah, I think it's still early, sort of growing pains. I think under Doc at the moment, and how much of the schemes he does change? Well, not much, you'd say, because <laughs> again, it all it all comes down to our perimeter defenders, right? And there's just been Swiss cheese blown by so easily from the arc that it's put so much pressure on Giannis and Brooke to block every shot or just deflect every shot near the rim. And that, unlike three, four seasons ago, right, where the perimeter defense was super rock solid and all those formations and rotations were absolutely spot on. Even Doc mentioned after the loss to the Nuggets that a lot of the rotations that they couldn't get right. There are a lot of miscommunications and that's going to be sort of a work in progress in that aspect. And sort of, I think the rotations as well too, we've seen recently that Andre Jackson Jr. hasn't played and that's a real surprise considering the amount of spark and energy that he's given, especially within our sort of defensive line too, and especially on the perimeter. That's sort of a non-negotiable why he isn't still in the rotation. And Marjan Bochamp's another one too, which has fallen out of the rotation and sort of has been documented that Doc prefers playing veteran guys and youngsters are sort of often put to the side. So how that sort of plays out is going to be highly intriguing to tell. And these last, well, they play, they're playing the Mavericks today and then, of course, the back-to-back against Utah Jazz tomorrow. So it's a tough road trip, right? that they're currently on, and it's definitely going to tell a lot more, especially against the Jazz who've been playing exceptionally well. The Mavs, yes, they've had their slides here and there, but of course, Luca's just been Luca himself, so there's still a lot to go. Our next segment, I saw the Embiid 70-point game and the 63-point game from Cat, but I know there's been a number uh, a number of other point explosions in the NBA, and I didn't see any of them due to you know power, internet, Talk to me about, I think Luca has 73 points. I think Tyrese Maxey had 50-something yesterday. Have I missed any other big games and which one was the best? I think PJ Washington had a 43-point game, what? if not mistaken, as well, too. As I, well. Di- I didn't see you going that way, but shout out to PJ Washington on the Hornets. I give him some love there. Tom, you got someone else hiding that had a, a big 40-point game? Uh, I, I, not not off the top of my head, but you know, I mean, I'm more than happy to talk about some of the more notable ones. Um, you know, I mean, we had that one week where obviously we missed the show, but you know, Luca had 73 and B had 70, Cat had 62, Booker had 62 against the Pacers. Missed um, that? Okay, didn't know about that one. Yeah, no, it got swept under the rug because they lost that game. 
um, which, you know, it, this is the, the thing for me. I hold little value in 60-plus point games, 40-plus point games, 50-plus point games if they come in losses because you're not here to pat the stats. If you want to go do that, go to the, one of the worst teams in the league, lose every week, but take 50 shots. I mean, it was like when Jeremy Grant went to Detroit. No, you know, Sorry, Jack, who's missing the show today, but... You know, he was nearly an all-star when he was there because he was just chucking up shots and he was the number one guy. Most of these guys are good enough to do that. I mean, Cam Thomas had 40 points today against uh, the Sixers. Um, You know, if you want to go do that, do that. I mean, you look at Cat's game. He had 62 points, eight rebounds, two assists. That's a center having eight rebounds. And he got benched pretty much down the stretch because he was just chucking up shots. He just wanted to... Get to seventy. They said in the post game his teammates that were trying to fit him the rock to get to seventy. I'm like, sure, we all know you're doing that, but he went one for ten in the final quarter and blew the game for him. Yeah, and they lost to to Charlotte. You know, to Charlotte. I mean, yeah, to PJ sure, Washington. Got, yeah, exactly. Sure, they got forty point PJ Washington on there, but you know, he didn't score forty points that game. Um, I, I don't know. It's it, it's like you know, a few years ago now. It's quite a while ago now. But when Booker had seventy points against the Celtics, and they're all smiling in the locker room holding up the seventy sign, but it was like you lost. Uh, quite convincingly you were down by 10 points with two minutes to go and he was still on the floor just chucking up shots nothing for me it just doesn't hold much value i mean uh, luca's game 73 points 10 rebounds seven assists he went 15 to 16 from the line he only missed eight shots the whole entire game and you know five of them were from three he he beat the hawks i mean look the hawks are nothing to write home about their defense is horrendous i mean as we speak right now it's nearly half time and they've given up 64 points to the warriors uh, but still, 73 points, 73 points. And it's the same with Embiid. You can say, oh, he got the line 23 times and it was against, you know, Wemby and what, Zach Collins. But it was 70 points to 70 points. It's still impressive and they won. So I, those two performances for me stood out more than Cat or Booker's. Yuri, jump in. I know you were going to jump in about something about Luca somewhere. Or was it Devin Booker? It was about Jeremy Grant that oh, you Jeremy mentioned, Grant. Tom, too. And that reminds me of similar Jerry Stackhouse's season 2000-2001 where he averaged 29.8 points per game, even though I think he had a career-high 57 points in that win over the Chicago Bulls on April 3, too. And they just provided him the rock so much that season. Now, he was taking over like 20 field goal attempts a game and that was until Rick Carlisle came in and just basically basically alleviated a lot of that offensive load on Stackhouse. That's something I just wanted to talk about there too because Jerry was just an offensive machine in his heyday. And what Jeremy Grant, right, from basically a role player, defensive player in OKC and then going to Detroit because I think his role in Denver at the time, he wasn't going to be the starting power forward because Paul Millsap had that position. And then for him to go to Detroit and produce what he produced and, of course, He's got that five years, $160 million contract. What do you think about teams that may go after him, do you think? I'm really glad you asked that question because we don't talk about the Portland Trailblazers on the show at all because they're awful. Jeremy Grant, 20 points a game, shooting 40% from three. Underrated season in Portland, uh, 44 games. He missed some time from injury. He, It's a big salary. That's the only reason I don't see more teams going after him. Uh, He deserved the bag. I'm not saying he didn't. He's probably the best player on that Portland Trailblazers team. I think the salary is going to be problematic. Mm, yeah, I definitely think so. Five-year, $160 million deal they signed during the summer. And like all three of us have spoken about too, the stringent CBA contract mm-hmm. rule that comes in, well, the CBA agreement, should I say as well, on team signing players to more than five-year max deals now is limited. So it's only going to be a couple of players that have 
match deals and then the rest are sort of on mid-tier roles. Like what the Lakers have got right with D'Angelo Russell, Jared Vanderbilt signed that what, four-year $48 million deal. Russell's was about three years 51. I think Gabe Vincent's was what, three years 33. Reeves signed about four-year $56 million deal. So those are sort of like the mid-level, you could say, contracts. And what well, I know it's sort of going a little bit off topic here, but what what do you make of that in a way too, especially what the front office is trying to do at the league to try and combat sort of the larger contracts as well? I don't know if they're trying to combat the larger contracts, but that's what's happened. I think they're trying to combat the teams like the Golden State Warriors who print money every time they have a game in their stadium and can afford to pay the luxury tax. Um, it's an unfortunate byproduct that guys like Austin Reeves, who probably deserved a lot more than he got last year, only get 50, but I think you'll see it become the new normal over the next three years. A lot of the teams I read about on The Athletic or you know from beat reporters are either still a little bit unsure about how this incoming apron will work. So for those who don't listen to the show every week or maybe missed it, they uh, all of the teams in the league agreed to a new um, collective bargaining agreement last off-season, but certain aspects of it phase in next off-season, like the uh, second apron. So that means you can't trade cash in a deal and you can't take back more salary than going out. And it has a lot of crazy restrictions so a lot of teams are now not signing players to big contracts, being wary that they'll get stuck. So think about it a couple of years ago, Russell Westbrook was on like a two-year, uh, five-year, $200 million-ish contract. And we always said that was untradeable. And he got traded twice on that contract. You can always trade something in the NBA. I think a lot of teams are starting to look around at the, the second apron and these new restrictions going, that might change. We might be stuck with guys like Zach Levine, who earns a lot of money and is a really good player but how are you going to facilitate a trade for that? Um, I'm not sure if either of you want to speak on those incoming changes or do you want to move on to the Knicks and Cavs who have been both been on a roll in the last couple of weeks. I'll let Tom decide. Oh, I'm happy to move on to okay. the Knicks. We'll leave it there. Cavs and Knicks. Go for the Knicks. Uh, so look, I when we you know I was doing my notes for this, I kind of looked at them and you can kind of go one of two ways here. And it's, you know, route one is, the who have they played question, you know, since Christmas, they've won 15 out of 20 games. Really, it's only been the Timberwolves, 76ers, Nuggets, the Heat when they were on that losing streak, and Indiana of the, you know, quality playoff sort of teams that they've beaten in that, you know, sort of period. Whereas outside of that, they've either lost or they've beaten teams who aren't in the playoff picture. Or you can look at the other route, which is how they're playing. And they are establishing great chemistry right now, despite players missing numerous games and you know Randall now being out with that dislocated shoulder we'll see how that's going to impact them long term but from an eye test perspective they have one of the best defenses in the league at the moment and this is sort of how it normally starts for teams when you can kind of tell they've taken the turn like sure maybe they don't beat all the best playoff teams from the get-go but they get an easy run of games they make the most of it they build up their chemistry and form and then all of a sudden they're on a roll the the hoop looks twice the size all the shots are falling and it doesn't matter who they're playing and I really like what I'm seeing from them. And I have to admit, uh, there are a few things better than seeing Knicks fans up and about. You know, uh, look, I don't want to see them win a championship. Let's get that straight. I don't <laughs> I, I, I don't want to see them get that up and about, but it's always good fun watching them invested in the playoffs, especially when we saw, you know, what Trey Young did to them what, three years ago now. That was always good fun. But look, overall, I still think they're about one trade away from being a championship contender. But, you know, like I said, when we had the podcast after the Ananobi trade happened, 
you can't trust the Celtics in the playoffs. You don't know what the Bucks are doing. There's big question marks over the Heat, Sixers, and Cavs in the last couple of days. So there's a path for them to get to the Eastern Conference Finals or even the Finals. It's not out of the question. And so let's see. They got a big game against the Lakers today, but you know, no Randall. So that might be a bit interesting to see how they combat the front court. But also Jalen Brunson. It's appointment TV at the moment. He's just putting up 40 points nearly every night. And it's just so great seeing that Madison Square Garden crowd that's, get right behind that's him. That's the one thing I'm bummed I've missed over the last couple of weeks is I can look at the Jalen Brunson box scores without Randall playing. And jeez, I wish I'd seen some of those games. Um, just quickly on the Knicks, uh, Yuri, I do want your opinion on the team as well. ESPN uh, had a really interesting article about since the OG Ananobi trade, who's a defensive-minded player. The Knicks have gone from the worst offense in the league to the best. A very strange uh, kind of manipulation of the offense, trading out RJ Barrett um, and having OG play a more democratic facilitator role. ESPN said, one month after the trade, swapping Ananobi in, a, a in for Barrett has yielded a staggering 25-point swing for the Knicks, meaning every 100 times down the floor, the Knicks score 25 more points with Ananobi on the floor. Averaging 15.6 points, three stocks, almost 40% from three. He's just shy of a career high there. They seem like they're having a lot of fun, Tom. You hit nail on the head there. Yuri, thoughts on the Knicks, and then we'll move on to the Cavs. Couldn't agree any more with both of you, too. They're sitting 32 and 17, third in the Eastern Conference, especially with the 76ers slide currently, and they're on track to Nine win Nine-game win streak. Right. Did we mention that? Did I zone out if we mentioned nine-game win streak? No, we didn't mention that too, but this heavy slate of home games because they had so many road games to start the season. And I think Wally Serbiak in one of the Knicks games spoke about how important it was for the Knicks going into the big home stretch of games at MSG to really capitalize. And they've done so. And now they're on track, as mentioned, to win 50 games for the first time since 2012-13, which they won. They went 54-28 and that year and finished second in the Eastern Conference. And... The real fears about Randall, right, when he did his shoulder when Jaime Huckers came in, I think, to step in for the charge in that win over the Miami Heat, 125-109, to 109, is that his left shoulder looked pretty bad and he was going to miss multiple weeks. And now he's only going to miss, what, two to three. So that's such a terrific result, right, for Knicks. And Precious Achua, I think, has been filling in for him as well. And he's been solid. And I was completely wrong on this, right? I thought Achua would be like the third center behind Taj Gibson, who was second at that point. But Taj is now, I think he was wavered by the wave by the Knicks. So that's really opened more opportunity for Precious to really thrive. And he did so in Miami here and there as well, I think. And Sylvie sort of provides a really good defensive presence on the defensive end too. And he's a really good help defender in a way in a sense too. And that's what's really sort of transcended the Knicks apart from OG's very first game against Minnesota, which was so obvious, right? He's cutting along the baseline and there's something that was vastly different to what RJ gave to the Knicks as well, to the Knicks, shall I say. And it was just really crystal clear that OG's fit within the Knicks offense was going to just tailor so well to Tibbs' system. And like mentioned too, when OG was traded to New York, in late last year that he sort of had very similar sort of of a playing style to Luau Deng. Luau Deng was a pretty good cutter without the ball as well. And he provides so many of those de- defensive intangibles that Knicks have all, were already strong at, but it just further sort of propels them. And we saw against the Nuggets, right, that January 25th game, which they just absolutely put a Velcro on them. Held on to just 84 points all up. And Denver's offense is exceptionally good. And they shot the ball from three really abysmally as well. And 
it was just what they've been able to do, right, the last 10, 15 games on that sample on the defensive end too, which I think no doubt has left Tibbs in absolute raptures. And why not, right, this stage too? Dante DiVincenzo has a season-high 33 points as well and could have missed from deep. I think it was about hit eight or nine threes in the game too. So everything's clicking at the moment with the Knicks. And we've also, too, with Mitch Robinson, Mitchell Robinson, should I say as well, been missing for the last two months at best, right, with that foot injury. And he's not going to return until late in the season. So they've been able to cover all the bases really well. And Isaiah Hartenstein has been just a tremendous let's, fill-in as let's well. Let's keep going further down the roster. Rebounding. I think we've named everyone on the Knicks because they're all playing very well. Yep. We, we might move on. Well. We might move on from third in the East to fourth in the East. Two teams contrastingly, but playing very efficient and great styles of basketball. The Cleveland Cavaliers, fourth in the East, half a game back from the Knicks. They're right there at thirty wins, sixteen losses. They're nine and ten in uh, nine and one in their last ten games without Darius Garland, without Evan Mobley. I said a few weeks ago that um, I might eat my hat a bit here. That Donovan Mitchell is not a one A. I'm not ready to recant that. But he's been playing a lot better with just Jared Allen and no Mobley and Darius Garland having to, sh- uh, to share that ball. Again, haven't watched many of these games. Guys, have you watched Cavs basketball? Tom, what can you tell me? Nothing. I'm getting a head shake. I haven't watched a whole lot of it, but your last point there is, is probably what I'm going to emphasis on, on, on this Cavs team. And it's, it's why I have more faith in the Knicks. But, you know, again, like the Knicks, they've won 12 of their last 13. But outside of the two wins against the Bucks, the one win against the Clippers and the Magic, the rest were all against non-playoff teams. I think there was two against the Wizards and, and the Spurs in there as well. So it's not like they're beating impressive teams. But the reason why I have more faith in the Knicks is simply because they have more scoring options, but also they've been playing with all their guys. You know, Now without Randall, obviously, but they've been playing with all their guys. They've been building that chemistry. It's kind of funny because the Cavs are struggling and the reason why they have gotten a bit better is because Mobley and Garland have been out and they haven't had to share that ball and Mitchell's been able to take over and they've been able to space the floor a bit better because it's not like they've had Mobley and Allen out in that front court who both can't shoot threes. And I, look, I, they could you know prove that they can function with their full rotation and all their players, but maybe these guys just need to tinker their roster a bit and sort of build out a more evenly spaced team, especially in this three-point era. I, I, I look... I would love to see another Knicks-Cavs series in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Although I think, I think the way uh, the way it's going now with the Sixers, I think one of them will probably end up getting the three seed, and one of them will be the four seed. So we probably Could be a won't second see round that. matchup with more stakes. Um, or potentially, but I mean, I think I think if one of them gets the three seed, it will probably be Bucks, Cavs, or Bucks Knicks in the second round. Which again, that would be a great series as well. Again, I'm like kind of getting to the point where I'm like looking at potential playoff matchups, and I'm like, these are all going to be great series because you still got the Heat lurking in there. Indiana has given all these contenders problems as well, and now with the Sixers dropping out, you just don't really know where anyone's going to be. But look, to wrap up on the Cavs, I I think they're going to be a great regular season team. I just think come playoffs like last year, they're going to falter when a whole team has you know a, a week to scheme against Donovan Mitchell. Is he really going to be able to go off for 45 and win the game? I don't think so. Okay, we might move on, uh, unless Yuri, would you, was there anything there? Yeah, just got one bit as well. We spoke, again, two, three episodes ago about Jared Allen's just improved facilitating, right, and just the numbers he was giving up on the, or in terms of the assists as well that he was providing, and it was sort of joking Noah-like in the sense too, the way, not in terms of like Noah's exquisite, like when Noah was exquisitely passing, but Allen's passing was exceptionally good, and especially late last, well, late in December, which really began sort of 
this whole different dimension within the Cavs offense too and Mitchell handling more of the facilitating role, especially when Garland was out. But both now Garland and Evan Mobley are back in. So it sort of just further complements what the Cavs have already been doing. Sam Merrill as well, the former Buck as well. He was the very last draft pick, pick 60 back in 2020. He's also been another exceptional piece as well off the bench too. He has been. His three-point shooting. And Max Struess. And now something that the Cavs spoke about in the lead-in to the season was taking a way more threes than what they did last season. And those two have provided so much of their three-point shooting load. And it's they're, they're in a good spot. I, I think the start of the season, right, they were expected to be, you could say, top four, you could say, in the Eastern Conference. And although they had that very rusty start to the season, right, they lost to Boston, which, of course, Mobley did his knee. I think December 6th was his last game they played and Garland suffered that jaw fracture. I think it was against the Celtics as well in that mid-December clash. And they're about 13 and 13 at that point and just basically even on 500. And it was very, I think that point, a difficult proposition to say whether they would absolutely cascade down the standings of the East or whether they keep themselves above water or even better. But they've managed to sort of accomplish through those barriers and to be where they are right now. And I think it's going to be really sort of captivating to see what happens moving forward with them as well, especially with the offense and how it's run, especially with Mobley and Allen together and whether they can get more of that two-man sort of, sort of, you say, lob threat in the way too with those two, especially if Allen's improved passing. Mobley's not a bad passer himself. So those options are there too. And also mentioned as well with George Niang in that big game he had against the Bucks a few weeks back, those 33 points. And they, they've got so many options in a way with small ball and the big size lineup as well. So I think they're in a good spot. Just briefly on Sam Merrill, absolutely showed out in the Las Vegas Summer League, was one of my favorite, uh, favorite performers. Another guy who I just want you guys to flag was Javon Freeman Liberty. I think he made the all uh, Las Vegas Summer League team, either the first or second team. He's currently on the Raptors 905. I reckon you might see a fair bit of him in the next couple of weeks as the Raptors have kind of been slow-key tanking. He's a small forward, power forward from memory, big, strong guy, can pull a rebound down, go to the hoop down the other end. So Sam Merrill, Javon Freeman Liberty, not cut from the same ilk, but two guys who showed out in the summer league. Sam Merrill's getting a bit of a chance now, and I think you might see Javon Freeman Liberty, great last name, Freeman Liberty, uh, for the Raptors soon. All right. Moving on, uh, Jack Brophy couldn't be on the show today, but he wanted to ask us a couple of questions about the 82-game season and the 65-game limit for the major awards in light of Embiid's injury. Uh, Jack's take, which he sent through to me earlier today, was, I think the minimum should be 60 games for awards. That allows a little bit more wiggle room, plus people who've played more games should be looked at more favorably. It's the modern times. This is how teams keep themselves sustainable. He disagreed with uh, Tyrese Halliburton's comments uh, from... Uh, on TV, he said the owners, excuse me, he said Halliburton's comments were wrong about the owners. TV rights and fans pay for your salary. There's no reason it should game from should change from an 82-game season. Just before I ask your opinions, I've got the list of former MVP winners who have played the least amount of games. So last year, Joel Embiid played 66 games in the 22-23 season for an MVP. That's the sixth least in MVP history. But four of those other six are in lockout or shortened season. So we've got Bob Cousy, who played 64 games in the 72, uh, back in the 50s, it used to be a 72-game season. So that was 56-57, he played 64 games. Giannis played 63 games of a 72-game season in the COVID bubble season. 
LeBron played 62 in a 66-game lockout season in uh, 2011-12. Bill Walton is the only other outlier, 58 games in 1977-78, and he was by far and away standout that season. And then Carl Malone played 49 games, but it was a 50-game season in the lockout in 98-99. So last year, Embiid's 66 is the second least games played by an MVP during the season. The Lions currently at 65. What say you, Tom Dev? I think that the 65 games for the MVP is still fair. Um, I just think we are having a, a year where, you know, the front runner has now gone out and won't meet that requirement that it's kind of like, well, this rule is, you know, a problem. But, you know, like you just pointed out, Bill Walton was the only player who's ever won MVP with less than 65 games in a full season. And there's a reason for that. And it's because even before this rule, came in place, all the media voters looked at how many games were played and they kind of had their own little cutoff. And some some media members had it at 60, some had it at 6, 65, 70. They all had their own little cutoff. And so I don't think Embiid would have even won MVP this year in the current circumstances without that rule because of just the media liked them playing. I think for all NBA, it might need to be adjusted. Because I agree with you there, I, yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I was saying before we started recording to Yuri that, you know, the Pacers might finish as the 6 7 seed, and Tyrese Halliburton is going to be the main reason for that. But he's probably not, if he does meet the 65 game requirement, it might not be because he's actually played 65 full games. You know, I mean, the other night he came off the bench because, you know, I think one was kind of because of this 65 game rule, but two, he's still working himself back from injury, which I don't love because I don't want to see him get, you know, injured again. Like, like with Embiid, I, I don't want to see a player fight through injury and then end up, you know, hurting themselves even more. It's just the problem is this year, you know, Embiid's now gone down. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you guys got the game on between the Bucks and the Mavs at the moment, but Luca's just gone to the locker room with a rolled ankle. It might just turn out to be survival of the fittest because uh, at this rate, uh, the top players in the league just keep getting injured. That being said, I still think SGA is the front runner now. OKC Thunder have kind of taken over the West. Um, but yeah, look, that's my thoughts on it. I'm happy with 65 games for MVP. Yuri? Yeah, I'd have to agree too as well on that, Tom. And I think more than the fact that it should be 65 games is when you look at players who've played 65 plus during a regular season over the years as well, and them also getting into all NBA selections as well, whether it be all defensive first team, like a Draymond Green, even though and Rudy Gobert, I think it was one twenty seventeen eighteen. He missed a considerable time. Can't remember which injury it was, but he came back and was still able to get in to one of those all defensive teams as well, and was such a catalyst right for the Jazz getting past that first round and into the Western Conference semis. And I think we've already mentioned this guy so many times, right? And probably shouldn't mention him again, but he played the whole eighty two games in two thousand two thousand one, right after that stabbing incident. And a year after that, made the All-Star team and still played about all 82 games, right? We know who that player is. So there have been so many cases, right, over the years in terms of, or even, shall I say, I might just divert a little bit as well, but Latrell Sprewell, when he first came into the league You're in out of my now. Yeah, you, you've gone out of he my wheelhouse now. He played all 82 here. games as a rookie, I think, as well. And he was averaging over 35 minutes a game. That, that particular season. So it's those instances, right, where a lot of the past players have spoken about MJ, for example, right? He played, was it 
Out of his 15 seasons, nine of those he played the full 82 games or more. Tim Duncan in three of his, what, 2019 seasons in the league, 20 seasons, he played three of those three seasons playing all 82 games, right? So injuries, yes, have such a major factor on players not playing the whole 82 games, but the load management, like Joe Dumas at the start of the season, right, was talking about whole player participation policy to play all 82 games and combat the load management that we've seen for far too long in recent seasons. So I think just going back to the MVP race side of things, it is unfortunate in a way too that a player who's been playing so well, like for example, Joel Embiid, who's averaging 35.3 points per game, right, and has been absolutely on top of his game in all facets, right, to go down with his knee injury and basically be cut short is unfortunate in a way too. But then again, we've seen so many other guys have just been having exceptional seasons. SGA averaging 31.3 points. Luka Doncic, 34.6 going into the game against the Bucks, and nowadays rolled his ankle. Kyrie, he's ineligible for awards now because he's missed that cutoff 65 games. So. It's one of those ones, I think, that is going to take, I think, a bit of time for players to really get their head around. And I think by the end of it, there's sort of a lot of unknown answers, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of load management, which, um, you know, we can segue into our next sort of topic here, where it was, you know, LeBron James was probably one of the first players who sort of brought in the actual term load management because... Kawhi Leonard, while he's the face of it, he was sort of more injury management sort of stuff. But, you know, as we touched on earlier in the show, we had, you know, LeBron with the little hourglass emoji on his, you know, typical late night Twitter cricket In his fields. Um, but look, uh, we've sort of put in a little segment here for our best little LeBron fake trades. Although he has come out earlier, I think it was today, uh, Rich Paul's agent said he wasn't going to get traded. Um, but Yuri, did you, did you come up with any fake trades for LeBron? Oh, the only fake trade I can think of is a third reunion with the Cavs. That's the only third fake trade. That's not the only fake trade I could possibly think of is a third stint back in Cleveland. I just, I don't know why, but it's it sort of fits well and sort of that, I wouldn't say fairy tale because he already delivered that championship to Cleveland back in 2016, which was the city's first pro title, like 50 pro sports title, should I say, in 52 years at the, at the time. But... That's the only one that really sort of comes to mind, you think, with Cleveland. But once more, it's whether which team his son, Brody, gets drafted at, right? And at this stage, projections on him are that he's most likely going to be undrafted. So that's a second sort of round. A unknown. He'll right? go second round. Tom, I don't know it, if you want to leave with yours. It would be to see what happens if he does go undrafted and if a contending team generally just picks him up as the 13th man. I mean, we saw Miami Heat have you know Haslam basically just sit at the end of the bench for, what, three years, four years and not really play. And he you know supposedly made a winning contribution in that locker room. So really, if you're going to have someone at the end of your bench who doesn't play, may as well you know bring in Bronny and get LeBron with it. Um, but look, personally, I, I don't mind him going back to the Cavs. I still don't think that'd probably be enough for Cleveland to sort of get over the hump because they'd probably have to give up uh, in order to give up recent uh, a decent amount of assets to get him back. Um, I, I personally just couldn't think of a really good trade for LeBron. I mean, Miami's been out there, but they just don't really have the assets, especially now that they've gotten rid of another pick to get Terry Rozier in. They don't really have the first round picks to uh, get him in. Um, and so ultimately, I just I don't think he'll, you know, 
leave himself, but I think uh, he'll trade half his roster again and basically flip it like he did last year and like he did in his last year in Cleveland. Uh, and they'll make somewhat of a run. I think they will make the playoffs in the end, but he'll just run out of gas like he did last year. And I think that comes to the ultimate picture of LeBron and the teams that he's been on. You look at his last 10 years, you know, he, last year they were a seven seed, year before 11 seed, year before that seven seed, then the year they won the title with the one seed. Year before that, he was injured, but they, they finished as a 10 seed, but he didn't really play most of that season. Um, then it was four seed, two seed, one two, seed, two seed. Most of his deep playoff runs, he's been in the top four seeds. You know, It was only that last year in Cleveland where he flipped his whole team at the deadline and then they made that run and they managed to get up to the four seed and it didn't really matter because that was prime LeBron. He doesn't have that anymore and he can't keep cruising through the regular season and think that he can flick a switch and win four straight series to win a title. He's not 32 anymore. He's 39. And so I just think it doesn't even matter if you know he gets traded to another team. He has to have more talent around him to compete anymore. I, I've got one. I think the other part as well with LeBron, right, and you mentioned about some of the, as well, where his teams have finished, right, especially the Lakers. That 2018-19 campaign, they were fourth, I think, when they beat Golden State on Christmas Day. And he, I think he hurt his ankle, I think, by memory yeah. too. And it sort, of, it sort of derailed the Lakers' season because they were doing so well at that point. And then he sort of it just got to that stage where, he sort of had to battle through it and then basically they shut him up shop. And I think his most underrated season, LA was 21-22. I really do. The 28, whatever it was, the 28.7 points or 28.6 points per game they average. that 56-point game he had against the Knicks on February 5th as well. There were some absolutely gigantic performances that LeBron had in that underwhelming season that the Lakers only won, what, 37 games? And it just, it never clicked. And I think it never clicked because the reason why early on when they played Phoenix and they lost, it was a home game and Dwight and, it was was Dwight Howard and just trying to remember who the other big was at that time. They sort of had this bit of a disagreement on the bench and it was sort of, I wouldn't say it was probably made the first cracks on what was going to happen to the Lakers, but something that just, Maybe it wasn't going gel right, and it was just it was a real disappointment. But LeBron's season, that one was the most underrated of his that I can think of. I have at, a LeBron trade. Am I here? I dropped out of the call for a second, and I had a conversation with you three that you didn't respond to me for about three minutes. So I figured maybe my audio's dropped off and my video's dropped off. But if you can hear me now, I have one single LeBron trade. Just if someone confirm I'm not speaking into the ether again. Can you hear me? <laughs> Yes, we can. You're back. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm glad I'm back. I've got one LeBron trade, and I'll ask. I'll start it by asking, which team loves money the most? I think it's an easy question. It's the Golden State Warriors. Come on, the San Francisco. They print money in their bay jersey sales. This is a trade I put in my. I play basketball. A basketball group chat earlier in the week, and highly divisive. So I'd love to see your thoughts. LeBron James to the Golden State Warriors this season, mid-year. That means he signs his player option and they have two more runs at championships in Golden State. The Lakers get back Andrew Wiggins, who's getting paid $24 million a year. That's the majority of the salary. You get Gary Payton II, Jonathan Kaminga, Moses Moody, Brandon Pajemski, and two first-round picks unprotected. 2026, when LeBron is no longer there, and 2028, off into the future. 
Who says no? I think ultimately the Lakers will say no. And I, I, I think it's simply because they've seen what it's like when they don't really have a, a 1A star there. And they had that. Anthony Davis. I think if they trade LeBron, I think Davis is next to go. I don't think the Lakers are going to uh, hold on to both of them, knowing full well that this whole entire season they've had both of them healthy. And quite frankly, the best they've looked was uh, on Friday against Boston when both of them were sitting at the end of the bench. Um, I, I think it's a it's it's you know one domino goes the next goes too. Uh, but ultimately, I just I don't think they're going to trade LeBron for that sort of package. I think they're going to want a star back because. Free agency hasn't been too kind for them. And it's not like there are many players hitting free agency now because free agency nowadays isn't actually free agency. It's, I'm going to sign a max contract with my team, get the bag, then a year and a half later, I'll request a trade out because I know that the team's going to facilitate it, which is a whole nother discussion. But ultimately, I, I just think if the Lakers are going to trade LeBron, it's going to be for young assets. So that trade could potentially work, but that Wiggins contract is just ugly. I don't think the Lakers will want to take that one back. You, you can swap Wiggins for Chris Paul, who makes more but over less years, and it works out, um, or Draymond Green. But I figure LeBron wants to play with CP and Draymond. So, Yuri, any thoughts on that one before we wrap up the show? I think that's a compelling trade in a way too. Not for the Lakers, but for Golden State, and especially, again, Steph's producing another really good season. Even though I think his field goal numbers have just dipped to about 45%, right, which is it's still solid enough, but maybe not in Steph Curry's standards too. And he's still averaging 27.5 points a game. He's still shooting just a tick over 90% from the stripe. I think it was 91.3 the last time I checked where he shot from the free throw line. I think within our whole dynamic as well, for the whole championship window, I think Golden State, even though most people say that the dynasty is fair and square, done and dusted now, but if you bring LeBron across for one final crack too, it could potentially yield. But again, like Tom said as well, the Lakers, it sort of doesn't really favour them too much. That's the worry, I think. Throw in a third pick then. Yeah. Or maybe even a third team. Do you reckon a third team would work in a sense too to really sort of maybe appease the Lakers? It depends what they want. I, I honestly think with the squad they've got and with Anthony Davis, they're good enough to make the playoffs. I don't think they're winning a title without LeBron unless they get someone incredible back. But you look around the landscape and who wants to trade out? It's it's pretty limited. Hmm. Unless you get DeMar DeRozan. And now we're back where we started an hour ago. So maybe that's a, an excellent point to wrap up today's show. Uh, if you're still here, consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really enjoy those. It lets us know we're doing good work. Tom, uh, you wrote an article, you said. You got anything else out this week? Where can uh, we find we'll that see. one? It's uh, on the Raw. Um, it's, you know, the, they sort of retitled it, but it is sort of like about the Doc River All-Stars. I had quite a lot of fun uh, putting that one together, actually, because if you look at how many players he's had on his team, it's it's insane. And look, just quickly on Doc Rivers, I'd like to get a live panic meter on uh, Yuri. It's end of the first quarter, and the Mavs are up by 24 points. How are how, how we, how we feeling at, at this at this point, Yuri. Uh, guess what, Tom? If we don't clean up our defense, and as Clyde Walt Frazier always says, Swiss cheese defense, we don't combat that, right? We're in a whole lot of trouble. Seriously. I, it's not going to figure out a solution in terms of having Doc there as the coach, and Doc's not going to fix all our defensive woes that we've had this season. It's pretty glaringly obvious. From the Toronto game on November 1st, that was really 
the first cracks of many, right, where the Raptors were able to so easily penetrate the paint and it turned into an absolute fast job in a way too. So I wouldn't say I want to panic just yet, but I wouldn't say it's going to be like 2001, 2002 where the Bucks completely fell in the heap after the 26 and 13 start, but those defensive woes have to be addressed pretty quickly for us if we really want to make any sort of inroads right. Tom, ask me what I think. Tom, ask me what I think. What, what, what do you think, Dr. J? I'm ready to write them off. The Bucks with Doc Rivers aren't doing anything this year, and then Milwaukee will be paying four head coaches next year. That's on them. That's on their ownership for picking Doc, who has shown over and over and over again, not a great X's and O's coach, which is what the Bucks need right now to fix that defense. He's a good people manager, but I've got no faith in him. Absolutely I, I, I- none. At, at this rate, that will be uh, 2024 All-Star coach Doc Rivers on a technicality. So just just, just, just watch what you say. Oh, somebody end the show, please. Yeah, <laughs> Let's pull the plug. Let's pull the plug. All right. Uh, I should say thanks again, but I'm not sure I feel great about that. Um, Yuri, have you got anything coming out this week? I'll plug my own stuff. I've got an article coming out on the Inner Sanctum. We've got three. It's a three-party. Yuri, you're contributing about ranking every team in the NBA currently. We'll put links up to that later. Anything coming from you, Yuri? Yeah, so I had three articles come out this week as well. So I did one on Yannick Sinner as well and what this Australian Open title will mean for him going forward because definitely think he's the rising young star in tennis along with Carlos Alcaraz. And even though Alcaraz lost to Alexander Zverev in the quarterfinal, he's got a great future. But Sinner's poise to drop those first two sets and against Daniil Medvedev, who is one of the top baseline has one of the top baseline games in men's tennis as well to really shorten those rallies to his advantage sinner's the winner once more and he's an absolute star even the other just two? at the age of 22 years of age number two as well the nbl round 17 talking points as well and the other one as well the west indian test win over australia right the first down under since 1997 that they've won a test match and it was an awesome can test match. somehow reinvigorate west indian cricket right with a new crop of players that they brought down under as well and led by Shamar Joseph, I think it can bring a bit of future promise right to a team that has been on the decline since the mid-1990s. So those are three articles I released, a couple of podcasts as well with the Oven Stumps You're for the Inner Sanctum man. as well. Yeah. And also with the Carlton podcast too for the Inner Sanctum too, which we kickstarted on Friday. And our special guest was Carlton legend Anthony Kudafidis. Well done. That's a that's a good pull. Uh, we'll leave it there because that's a high. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Hopefully, episode next weekend, they do say another cyclone's coming my way, but surely not. Surely not three weeks back to back. See you, guys. See ya. Cheers, Alex. Cheers, Tom. Cheers.